Amen. Good morning, church. Thank you uh, to our student worship team. Love seeing the students up here leading us in worship. Uh, let's give them a round of applause. Let's thank them for using their gifts. Reminds me of when I was in high school and served on my church's worship team, and back then I thought that for sure I was going to make it big in the music industry, and I still believe, you know, if it wasn't for just a lack of talent, I truly believe I could have done it, but um, alas, here we are. Anyways, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 15 this morning. And I do just want to say, uh, before we dive in, I'm a, a little bit under the weather, so you might have wondered why I came from backstage. I don't really, I don't never do that, so, uh, and, and uh, I haven't spoken really to any of you this morning. I'm trying to keep my distance. We were up in uh, Michigan. My brother got married yesterday, and I performed the wedding, and uh, started feeling a little off the night before the wedding, uh, so I guess it would have been Friday night, and then, uh, but started feeling better Saturday, did the wedding, and then uh, we were driving home last night, and I just... Uh, you started getting feverish, and it, it wasn't, I don't know what's going on. I just had COVID a month ago, so I don't know what's happening. Um, it's, it's just fr frustrating. But this may be TMI. I usually, I usually give you too much information. But I was just 10 minutes ago in my office and uh, getting ready uh, to come in, and uh, Emily comes into my office and takes one look at me and says, what happened to you? And I, had, I didn't notice it, but I just completely sweated through my shirt. So she went home and got me a different shirt. Thankfully, we live one block away, and so she went home and got me. So I have a fresh shirt. Now, usually I sweat through my shirt, but it's after I preach, not before. Um, so anyways, all that to say, uh, please pray for me as I'm preaching this morning. I'm not feeling great. I'm going to preach and then head right out that door and probably go to, go to bed. But, um, but I, I'm looking forward to preaching this morning. Um, I'm really excited for our time in the Word. And um, I do want to say, just before we start here. I don't, I don't know if I've ever said this, but this morning I'm, uh, as I was preparing, or this week as I was preparing the sermon, um, I, I was just struck once again with um, the uh, awesomeness of our God and of the gospel. And I'm going to be preaching the gospel this morning. And I don't know, I would imagine this is true. I don't know, though, if there's anyone in here who is not a follower of Jesus yet. And I just want to say before I start, if that's you, like, I, it's not an accident that you're here. And it's not an accident that you're hearing this this morning. And so if, if that's you, and I don't know who you are as I look out uh, on our church this morning, but if that's you, I just want to ask you to really think about the things that I'm going to be sharing this morning, and I want you to test your heart and see if the Lord is not nudging you and drawing you to himself, and if that's you, we're going to, so like I said, I'm going to preach and I'm going to get out of here, but at the end of the service, we're going to have some people up here who are going to be pray, who would be available to pray with you, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you hear this and you feel like the Lord is drawing me to him in a way that I can't explain, I would love after the service for you to come up and, and uh, pray with the people who will be up front. So like I said, I don't normally start a sermon that way, but I'm just really struck by that uh, this week as I prepared. And so I would ask as we begin here, just bow your heads with me and let's pray and let's ask the Lord um, to do a mighty work this morning. Heavenly Father, God, you're good. Um, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can gather and be together here this morning. Uh, we thank you for the ways that you are moving and working in our midst. Lord, I ask that as uh, I preach, um, that you would give me strength uh, 
to uh, not only make it through, Lord, but just, Lord, that the gospel would be clearly communicated through your word, God. I know it has nothing to do with me or what I say, but it's you working in and through uh, your word that is preached, Lord. And so I just ask that you would do a mighty work in us this morning. Uh, For those of us who are followers of you, God, strengthen us in you uh, today. May we just be um, just blown away afresh with who you are and what you've done for us, God, and um, and for those, if again, if they're not following you, that may they just for the first time see you for who you are and your love for them and your never-ending grace and mercy that you are just waiting and ready to just pour out on them and give freedom from bondage and sin and suffering and the joy that is found in you, God. So do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, this uh, weekend I was in Michigan and had the uh, privilege of performing my uh, younger brother Son Son's uh, m- wedding. Uh, so he and my new sister Summer are now married. You're also probably thinking, I, I hope he didn't get them sick uh, right before their honeymoon. I'm also thinking that, so you can be praying for them, actually, as you think about that. But, you know, in the lead up to the wedding, this was, I think, my third or fourth wedding that I've done, I was, I'm always struck by just, like, how many questions need to be answered before a wedding. When's, what's the wedding date, right? Where's the venue? What kind of cake will we have? Who's going to do the catering? Who are the groomsmen? Who are the bridesmaids? What are they going to wear? What kind of flowers will we have? How many people are we going to invite? What music will we have? How are we going to keep great Aunt Martha from making a scene at the reception? You know, just on and on and on. There's hopefully that nobody has a great Aunt Martha in here. That was just hypothetical. There's so many questions that need to be answered. But at the end of all of that, right, you want to answer those questions. You don't want to uh, have a wedding where nobody knows what's going on, where there's, you know, just that's just total chaos. So you want to have answers to those questions. They're important. But at the end of the day, there's one question that matters above all the rest, right? Do you take this woman to be your wife? Do you take this man to be your husband? That's the important question. If the answer is no, it kind of renders all the other questions meaningless, doesn't it? Like imagine going to a wedding afterwards. Oh man, what a beautiful wedding. Beautiful weather. The bride was you know, beautiful. All the flowers were great. The food was fantastic. Everything was just so tastefully done. It's just too bad that the bride left the groom at the altar. You know? But everything else was just a great wedding. That's ridiculous, right? When it comes down to it, as important as the other things are, there's only one question that matters. And I would argue that the same is ultimately true in your life. There's a million questions that you need to answer over the course of a lifetime. Some big questions like, who am I going to marry? Or where am I going to go to college? Or you know, where do I do for my career? Or where will I live? Or, you know, and on and on. We have to answer big questions over the course of a lifetime. You also have to answer a bunch of small questions over the course of a lifetime. What am I going to have for dinner? What time am I going to bed? Or for me, what version of a blue golf shirt am I going to preach in this week, right? But when it comes down to it, there's only one question that matters in life, and that is the question that David asks at the beginning of this psalm. So hopefully you're in Psalm 15. Look at uh, verse 1 of Psalm 15 with me now. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? What David is asking here, simply put, is who gets to live with God? Who gets to live 
with God? Who gets to be invited into God's house to live with him? This is the question that your entire life leads up to. This is the most important question you can possibly answer in your life. Not caring about this question or not thinking about the answer would be like planning a wedding and not caring if the bride and groom get married. And as important as it is, I think it's a question that's actually, when I think about it, pretty uncommon. We don't ask this question very often, at least not in the way that David asks it. There's a very important specific nuance in the way that David asks it that we often forget. And so for the next few moments, we're going to go in depth into this uncommon question. And then we're, after that, we're going to see that David gives a somewhat uncomfortable answer to that uncommon question. But first, let's talk about it. The uncommon question that David is asking is, who gets to live with God? Now, one thing you might notice, if you haven't noticed it before, you're going to start to notice it as you read the Old Testament, is that oftentimes the same question is asked two different ways but, uh, for emphasis, but it's really the same question. And so that's what is happening here. When David said, who, who shall sojourn in your tent? He's referring, the tent is referring to the tabernacle tent where the presence of God used to dwell when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. You know the story, and God's presence would be there, and when they would go pick up, then they'd pick up the tent and everything and follow the presence of God, and they wandered in the wilderness uh, for 40 years. That's, but the tent was where God's presence was. And then he says, who shall dwell on your holy hill And the hill he's referring to is a hill on which the temple sat, again, which is where the presence of God was. So in two different ways, he's asking the same question, which is who could possibly be good enough to live in the presence of God? I don't know what spurred David to ask this question, but he's seeing now the holiness of God. He's seeing that God is perfect. He's seeing that God cannot abide with anything less than perfection. And so he cries out, who is worthy of this? Who is worthy to be welcomed in God's house? And that nuance right there is why I would argue that this is an uncommon Question. Now, there is a, com- a common question that's related to this that people ask all the time, which is, who gets to go to heaven, right? We all want to know who gets to go to heaven. I think it's interesting that even uh, when you talk to people who aren't necessarily practicing Christians, very few people like claim to just completely d- disbelieve in the supernatural, Right, if you've ever talked, I mean, we, uh, for example, if you've ever gone on the Spread Truth uh, New York City mission trip, which I went on uh, several years ago, and so you just talk to like hundreds of people throughout the week in a very secular city about matters of faith, and you just find, I was just struck by the fact that very few of them just openly say, yeah, there's no God, there's no life after death, there's nothing. Most people hold on to some notion of the fact that there's something bigger than themselves, and there's something that's going to happen after death. And so there, many people are just living life in a way that they hope that they're good enough to go to heaven. Truly, maybe that's somebody here in this room right now. Maybe that's you. You're just holding on to this notion. I just hope that I've done enough. I hope that I've been good enough to go to heaven. 
Now, it shouldn't surprise us that, uh, that uh, most people have some sort of an understanding that there is a higher power out there, right? Even if they don't necessarily know who that is. Romans 1, among other passages in Scripture, tells us that God has revealed himself to all people through his creation and that no one is without excuse. So we shouldn't be surprised that many people have some notion of God, of right and wrong, and of heaven or hell. But when we don't understand the nature of God, when we don't get it, then we're also going to misunderstand the nature of of heaven. What is heaven? We know that heaven is the dwelling place of God. It's his holy hill. It's his tent of his presence. Heaven is the place that you finally fulfill the deepest longings for intimacy in your heart by the creator. Heaven, in a sense, is the Garden of Eden remade. What was so great about the Garden of Eden? The fruit, I'm sure the fruit was amazing. The animals, yeah, that pretty great. The fact that work wasn't too difficult, yeah, that's all well and good. But the best thing about the Garden of Eden was the perfect relationship that man had to God and to one another, right? It says they were naked and unashamed. They had perfect relationship. There was nothing to be ashamed of. Perfect relationship to God and perfect relationship to each other until sin came into the garden and messed it all up. And destroyed that perfect relationship with God and brought a rift in between man and woman. So heaven is a restoration of the Garden of Eden. It's a restoration of the perfect relationship between God and man and neighbor. It's no wonder that Jesus said the most important commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we were created to do from the very beginning. That's exactly what Jesus did and came to do and came to make it possible for us to do that for eternity. But heaven is only heaven because God is there. It's only heaven because the presence of God is there. If we continue with our wedding analogy, heaven without God would be like a honeymoon without your groom or your bride, right? Like imagine if you talk to two people who just got married on their wedding day. Hey, guys, where are you going on your honeymoon? Uh, well, we couldn't agree where to go, so he's going to Gatlinburg and I'm going to Florida, right? That, guys, I think you're missing the point of what a honeymoon is for, right? <laughs> A honeymoon, not to take this too far, but a honeymoon is a honeymoon because you experience total intimacy with the love of your life, not because you get to go to the beach or the mountains or whatever. And yet we miss that when it comes to our understanding of heaven, I think. It's not heaven because the streets of gold or the loved ones being there or not getting sick or anything else as great as those things are. It's heaven because you're going to finally experience true and total intimacy with your creator, which you were made for, and you've never had it. So like in some ways, we don't even, uh, like, we don't even know how to long for that, except that we look for it in so many other ways. 
And again, maybe that's your story this morning, right now. I've been looking to have that hole in my heart fulfilled where I know I just want somebody to know me and love me fully and completely. And I just, I just want that filled in my heart. And I've been looking in all these places and they've all taken me just to a total dead end. And here I am and I don't know what to do. God is the one who will fill that in your heart. He created you to, for that purpose. And when you spend eternity with God, it means your deepest longings for joy and satisfaction and wholeness and intimacy and restoration will all be fulfilled in God. And all those relationships that we have with one another will not be marred in the least by sin. Which again, we can't even fathom what that's going to be like. And it's really important that we make this distinction. If we think of heaven as just like a super fun place that God made for the top 50% of people or 25% of people or whatever percent you want to put on it, we can start to think then in the back of our minds that we deserve to be there. In fact, we can even start to think that God is obligated to let us go there, right? That he'd be wrong to not let us in. God, didn't you see all the stuff I did for you? Didn't you? God, I filled in the connection card like 10 weeks in a row one time at church. <laughs> or insert whatever, you know. And start to think that we're, we've earned our way there because, well, I'm just better than these people, so why would God not let me in? And that's why it is so important to understand the nuance of this question. David is not asking a question necessarily just of who gets to go to heaven if heaven is just a place that God makes for the nice people to keep them away from the mean people, right? He's saying, who gets to live with God? Who gets to be God's honored guest for eternity? Who has lived such a perfect life that God would just welcome them into his house with open arms? You see how that's a totally different question. That's the question that David asks. And then he answers it in the next three verses. And he gives really 11 qualifications that all lead us up to one uncomfortable answer. This is who he says deserves to be in the presence of God forever. Look, I'm just going to read verses 2 to 5, the rest of the psalm. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against a friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money, his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved." Now, is it an in, isn't it interesting that David's answer isn't who gets to be in that presence of God? He who keeps the law perfectly, right? He who follows the Torah, who, he who does everything that God told them to do. God had given them the law. This is what you're supposed to do. And yet nothing in his answer has anything to do with following the Torah, he doesn't give one single, quote-unquote, religious requirement, not one sacrifice to make, not one festival to keep, not one commandment to obey. Every single requirement that he gives has to do with what? The heart. 
Why? Because the heart is what reveals our true spiritual condition. Simply put, it's possible, if not somewhat easy, to make it look like on the outside that you are conforming to God's standards and doing what he wants you to do. But one look at the heart can reveal a very different picture. And so in these 11 answers to the question, who gets to live with God, we're struck that there is one really, really just one answer, which is uh, not you, reader. (laughs) He says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Speaking truth in your heart means living a life of integrity, what's on the outside matching what's on the inside. And so according to this verse, to be allowed, invited into God's presence, we must always, in every instance, do, say, and think what's right. So I'm just, you can just raise your hands and then just kind of slowly drop your hands if you start to break one of these things, right? No, we're all, we're all like, verse two, we're all in trouble, right? We're not feeling so good about it. Verse three, he who does not slander with his tongue does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, So these qualifications have to do with how we treat others. To be allowed in God's presence, you must never use your words to harm other people, never make fun of someone, never do something to hurt someone else. You must always, in every instance, in the way that you relate to other people, act, think, and speak in the most loving way possible. How are we feeling now? It goes on. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. You must hate what is evil in every instance and love what is good in every instance. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Kind of a strange phrase. It just means you keep your promises 100% of the time, even when it hurts you. If you make a promise and you realize, oh, that's, gonna, that's actually going to hurt me, you still stick to what you said. Does not put out his money at interest. Does not take a bribe against the innocent saying you must uphold absolute integrity in all areas when it comes to your money. Even if you could stand to gain greatly by doing something that's technically legal, maybe, but morally wrong. He closes the psalm by saying, he who does these things shall never be moved. All right, great. So that's all. You just do these things. And you'll never be moved. You'll be invited into the presence of God forever. All you got to do, church... Just live a life that demonstrates perfect integrity, never puts your own interests above anyone else's, never speaks a careless or hurtful word, always do what's right, always believe what's right in your heart. Okay? All right, that's it. Yeah, easy, someone said. That's our sermon for today, church. So you want to spend eternity with God? Be perfect. Let's pray. (laughs) No, that's not it. Can you imagine if that was? If I ended the sermon there, it would be a pretty hopeless sermon because not a single one of us fulfills this list of qualifications. Not a single one of us should feel good about this list of things. If you do, you're either not listening to me properly or we have a little bit of a pride issue to deal with. The only way to read this and feel good about your chances to stand in the presence of God is if you're lying to yourself. But if we're honest as we sit here this morning, The word lays us bare here that truly none of us (laughs) deserves to spend eternity with God. None of us. So what's our hope? What's our hope? Well, our hope is that someone could do all these things for us. (laughs) 
that somebody somehow, some way could live up to that list. And then if we could somehow, some way be given credit for what that person did. And praise the Lord, church, that's exactly what happened in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the he of Psalm 15, amen? Jesus is the one who walked blamelessly. Jesus is the one who did what was right. Jesus is the one who spoke truth in his heart. Jesus is the one who perfectly loved his neighbor at every turn, who never sinned with his words, who never harmed another person. Who the Jesus is the one who puts others' needs above his own, which eventually culminated in his death on the cross, becoming a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Can I get an amen? He and he alone is our hope. Without Jesus, the sermon would have ended just with a hopeless thud. Who can dwell on God's holy hill? No one. But in Christ, we've been given a marvelous hope, the hope of the gospel. And so what's our response to that hope? What's our response? Well, first, we all, all, every single one of us, need to remember His holiness. We need to remember the holiness of God. When we don't remember how holy we, He is, when we forget just how completely undeserving, apart from Christ, we are to stand in His presence, then we just completely miss the gospel. If you just think of Jesus as someone that you just need to toss up a prayer to one time to make sure that you're saved, or if you think of Jesus as just uh, somebody who for some reason just wants to make sure you're sitting here in church rather than out on the golf course or fishing or whatever on a Sunday morning, like if that's your idea of Jesus, then you just don't understand who he is or who we are. God is holy, and none of us deserve to be in his presence. So let us not forget his holiness and think about his presence as something that we deserve on our, on our own. We need to remember his holiness. Second, we need to model his life. We need to model his life. Just because we can't live up to the standard to be saved doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter, church. We can't get like this like completely wrong the other way. Over and over and over again, we see in the New Testament that people who are saved are always changed. Always. 1 Peter 1, 14-15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What's former ignorance? What happened before when you didn't know anything, right? Don't be conformed to the way you used to live back then when you didn't know anything. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, remember the holiness of God. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So even though we fall short of the standard on this side of heaven, we're called to model his life. To try our best through the power of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and gives us the fruit of righteousness to live a life like Jesus did. To do what scripture tells us to do and repent when we fall short. To love God and love our neighbor. So we need to remember his holiness. We need to model his life. And finally, we need to long for his presence. We need to long for his presence. I don't think it's a coincidence that in the New Testament, God tells us the relationship of Christ to the church is like a relationship of a groom to his bride. 
I don't want to be trite with this analogy, but some of you have not yet entered into that covenant of marriage with God yet. Some of you have not yet said, I do. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not might, not he'll consider it, not your application will go on his desk underneath a whole bunch of other applications and maybe he'll give you the stamp. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you what? Will be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, If you're looking at these things like, I don't understand his holiness. I'm not modeling his life. Not really longing for his presence at the moment. Well, then you're in the right place. Maybe you always, before today, thought you understand what Christianity was about, but it's just kind of like hitting you different today. That's God. That's what he does. He's speaking to you. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to believe and be saved, and he wants to invite you into his presence forever. But it's not based on you. It's based on the righteousness of Christ that covers you. And so confess your sin to him and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and enter into that covenant relationship with him that will change you forever. There is no other question that's more important. You could get every other question right in life, But if you miss the gospel, you've missed everything. If you're hearing me this morning, it means that God in his mercy has given you the grace to hear the good news and respond. If you've never committed your life to Jesus, let today be the day that you say, I do. And like I said, after our closing song, there's going to be some people up here who would love nothing more than to pray with you. I just want to urge you to be obedient and to come forward after the service and pray. And speak to someone. Now, if you have committed yourself to Jesus, if you're a follower of him, most of us are in this room, if you've repented and believed the gospel, then I think we just need to be reminded by this passage that we should long for his presence. We're in a strange place, church. If you're a follower of Jesus, the wedding has happened, but the honeymoon hasn't taken place yet. We're in this in-between time before Jesus comes back. So as a church, let's be a bride who longs for that day because we get to be in the presence of the bridegroom and enjoy him forever. A honeymoon without your spouse is just a weird vacation, right? And heaven without the Savior is really just hell. So church, may we long for the day when we are united to our Savior once and for all, knowing that it's only because of Christ that we're able to sojourn in his tent and dwell on his holy hill. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. God, you created us to be in perfect relationship with you, enjoying perfect intimacy with you and with one another. And yet right at the outset, we messed it up. Eve took the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband, Adam, who also ate. God, if, if, if that hadn't happened, I, I know I would have taken it and eaten it too. 
justly and rightly bringing condemnation onto myself forever. God, as I stand before you now, I know that there is nothing in me that makes me worthy to be your invited guest to your holy hill, to the tent of your presence, and yet you've made a way for me and for all who follow you to enjoy that relationship once again. You fixed it. You sent us your son, and he's coming back. And we're going to enjoy that honeymoon when he does forever and ever and ever, God. And yet there's some, maybe some hearing my voice right now who have not come to you in faith, have never repented of their sin and believed in Jesus the Lord. May today be the day of their salvation. May today be the day that they say, yes, July 31st, 2022, God. May that be the day where they can look back and say, I'm a child of God. And I'm a part of the family of God, the bride of Christ. May we long for your presence, God, more and more. And may we be modeled in our lives more and more like Jesus. God, help us as we continue to put sin to death and put on righteousness because of the Spirit and bring you glory. You are so good to us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.